Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series. Mr. Robert Zelik was in SMU on the 1st of July 2014 as the 15th speaker of the Presidential Distinguished Lecturer series. In a wide-ranging discussion on economic and geopolitical issues, moderated by SMU President Professor Anu Damea, Mr. Zelik shared his insights on China's economic reforms, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Japan's economic prospects, and the winding down of bond-buying activities by the U.S. Mr. Zelik is currently a senior fellow at the Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and distinguished visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He was the president of the World Bank from 2007 to 2012. Before that, he had distinguished himself with many years of service in the public and private sectors, including taking on the roles of vice chairman with the international arm of the Goldman Sachs Group, managing director and chairman of Goldman Sachs Board of International Advisors. He also served as deputy secretary of the U.S. State Department and U.S. Trade Representative under President George W. Bush's administration. In this podcast, we feature highlights of the dialogue session with Mr. Zelik, which took place in July. Bob, you have been um, very active in the whole area of international trade. And uh, I guess that one of the things that is really on our mind, and it's the first question that I would sort of would like to start with. And by the way, uh, I have the privilege of being the chair here today, so I can ask my questions first and then I leave it to the room. Um, but uh, the, the, what's on our mind here, in, uh, in definitely in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Singapore, but actually throughout uh, ASEAN, I think, and throughout actually East Asia, is um, the free trade uh, agreements, the Asia, but also the TPP, the Trans-Pacific uh, um, Partnership. Uh, and uh, it looks very um, interesting to us here uh, in, in Asia, but it, we are not sort of convinced that uh, the United States is fully behind this. So sort of, you see a bit of a going back and forth on this, uh, or uh, lukewarm commitments, or maybe other words that I could use. What's your take on this? Uh, is the United States really committed to it? Uh, um, is this where we will go, this TPP? Well, first, let me thank you for the invitation to be here, and thanks all of you for, uh, for, for coming to this event. Uh, I uh, really have to compliment uh, those that helped establish SMU. I think it's a very nice addition uh, to the higher education uh, environment in Singapore, and very reflective, I think, of the changes in Singapore. Just so you have some background, I first visited Singapore um, in uh, 1989 or 90, and uh, it was at the time of uh, the creation of APEC, and the first APEC meeting had been in Australia, and we needed to have an ASEAN country uh, host the second one, and Singapore was good enough to do so. So I've had many opportunities to come back and watch the changes, and even in those 25 years, it's really been tremendous what has been achieved here. So uh, TPP. I think you know, one starting point is uh, you know, kind of what exactly would be the interests of the, the countries in the region. And I think this gives a little bit of an opportunity to give a sense of where trade agreements are much more than a zero-sum negotiation between the parties. Uh, when I was the U.S. Trade Representative, I negotiated the U.S. Free Trade Agreement with Singapore. 
and my counterpart was George Yeo at that time, uh, later became foreign minister. And I remember asking George, um, as we were completing the agreement, that I was very appreciative that uh, we had this accord because I wanted to create some momentum of bilateral FTAs to support us at regional and global levels. But knowing that Singapore is a pretty open mm -hmm. economy, I said, you know, so what, what's the interest of Singapore in this? And his, his answer was very uh, significant. He mentioned that uh, the U.S. free trade agreements, and this also applies to TPP, tend to have a higher quality. They're more comprehensive and they, the rules are at a more advanced stage, including on intellectual property. And at that time, Singapore was already envisioning itself as drawing higher end uh, activities, manufacturing, pharmaceutical, and others. And his logic was that if Singapore could demonstrate that it had those high standards for a U.S. free trade agreement, it would be an attraction mm -hmm. uh, for those industries. And I was struck a few years later coming out and visiting part of Singapore and seeing the various businesses that had come in that regard. And I think that's an important way to look at free trade agreements is that you know, it, a lot of the policies that one is pursuing in a free trade agreement are frankly things that a country would want to do on its own, yeah. but it creates a political context. So in this environment, it's also creating the context for investment. So you know, it's interesting, over the years, some people were concerned about the role of multinational enterprises in developing countries. When I was at the World Bank, you could actually see that a lot of the countries that were successful were those that got into the logistics and supply chains, not only because of the direct economic benefit, but the externalities in terms of the knowledge and learning that were sort of built into those systems. So I think that is an issue related to TPP today. And frankly, one of the issues that runs from China throughout every developing country is the service sector, how you're going to build the service sector as a source of productivity and growth. If you look at the history of East Asian or other development in uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, you often start with moving people from agriculture to manufacturing, you get high-end manufacturing. The question is whether you can build the productivity in the services sector. So these are all reasons where I think it leads countries to have an interest in TPP. As for uh, whether the United States is committed, um, I think at an intellectual level the administration is committed, but the real challenge in doing these agreements is demonstrating the willpower mm -hmm. to come up with practical solutions to problems and to close, because no agreement is ever perfect. Uh, we all operate in political operating environments and authorizing environments, and you will always have critics that say you should have gotten this, that, or the other thing. But I think the challenge now for the United States will be whether President Obama will work with the Congress to get what's called the Trade Promotional Authority, which allows the President to bring back an agreement for an up or down vote, and whether he and his team uh, will close the deal. Um, and uh, this is where trade negotiations are a little bit different from other negotiations you might have been involved with, in that, again, if you are conceding something by opening your market, you're really helping your economy. Yes. But the question is, how do you bring along the political constituencies? Mm -hmm. And so I think you, sometimes when you see newspapers discuss trade agreements, it's like a poker game where one wins and one loses. Well, if you operate that way, you're never going to get a deal closed because somebody can't go home humiliated and get the agreement passed. 
The question is, how do you push the edges of liberalization and opening, but in a way that deals with political constituencies? And the standard way to do that in trade agreements is also to phase in requirements. Mm -hmm. So I just was reading in the paper, you know, the Korean rice farmers are sort of uh, objecting now to uh, openings not made in free trade agreements, but made back in the Uruguay round. So it's basically, you can see there was a 20-year phase in, and they're finally facing those adjustments. So for the United States, you have the TPP, you have the TTIP uh, mm -hmm. with Europe, which is a different type of structure. And the only point I'll add is that if you are a major world economy, as the U.S. is, representing about 23% of the world's GDP, I've always felt that it, you can use bilateral and regional agreements, but you also have to bring them back to the global area. And this is where uh, the services accord, the second information technology agreement, the WTO, these are also important for the United States to push. Uh, do you think it will be easier for Pre President Obama to get the TPP through if he loses the Senate? It'll actually be easier if he loses the Senate, uh, because um, this is the irony, is, is that uh, the President's party, for various historical reasons, mm -hmm. tends to be more suspicious of free trade. So the Republican Party, which is my party, is, tends, owns the House. <laughs> well, it's, it, it, you have different issues. So right now, uh, my party is more split on immigration issues, yeah. for example, which I uh, personally think that open societies do better regardless. But so the House is Republican, the Senate is Democrat, it could turn Republican. That would actually help the president with votes, but it makes for more complicated politics. So I think one reason why the president is unlikely to move on the Trade Promotion Authority before the midterm elections this November is he has some opposition mm -hmm. in his own party. Uh, but Mike Froman, who's the president's special trade representative, is close to the president. He's intelligent. He knows the issues in the brief. But what I've observed over the years is um, sometimes there's people who are very competent, but it, when they come to that edge of closing the deal, they kind of shrink back. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say, oh, you know, I didn't get a good enough deal. They didn't concede enough. And there's a point here where you have to uh, fish or cut bait would be the American yeah. phrase. As you know, uh, in this part of the world, uh, whatever we do, it's, there's always an elephant in the room, and it's a big elephant, and it's called China, right? Uh, because, uh, don't misunderstand me, uh, but... Uh, I thought uh, elephants were India. Yeah. Uh, it, maybe it's a tiger or a dragon or whatever that's in the room, right? Um, uh, but how do you see the role of China in the long term in this TPP, uh, related to TPP, and how do you see and maybe linked to that, what do you think, uh, what, uh, how much chance you give to Pres President Xi in his uh, economic reforms that he's trying to implement? It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, actually two questions. Yeah, yeah it, um, well, let's start talking a little bit about trade in China. You know, it's interesting to look how uh, former Premier Zhu Ranji used China's accession to the WTO in the 90s to push his internal reforms. So it's a good example of what I was saying is that trade is very much linked to structural reforms, microeconomic reforms. And so uh, when Zhu Ranji felt that he needed to have additional impetus and to break the hold of some of the economic structures, he used the international rules-based system to connect it domestically. I, I think that still holds. I wrote a piece in the Financial Times about six months ago 
based on discussions I had with some of the reformers in China about how China might be able to use negotiations of a bilateral investment treaty, which it's negotiating with the EU and yeah. the US, um, to push internal reforms. And indeed, tonight I head on to Beijing and I'm attending a conference on this with Chinese CEOs and officials that is trying to build on this logic of finding uh, more open investment of a two-way nature between the United States and China, but the rules of national treatment, which require you to treat other, the other countries' companies the same as you treat your own, uh, transparency, non-expropriation, being able to move capital back and forth, those are also the sort of rules that are important in Chinese reforms. And just to give you an interesting little anecdote, because this applies to both the WTO and the Bilateral Investment Treaty, when we completed China's accession to the WTO in 2001, I was the U.S. Trade Representative, I remember that uh, at that time Vice Minister Long Yong Tu uh, said to me that there was a strong interest on the part of the Chinese private companies in national treatment because the argument was if foreign companies were given the same right as the state-owned enterprises, it would make a better argument for the private enterprises in China to be given the same rights, similar with rules on transparency. So to relate this to the TPP, one way of looking at the bilateral investment treaty negotiation is a building block to TPP because the TPP is designed to include an investor uh, uh, section and that would normally be built on a bilateral investment treaty. Similarly, the global services negotiation in the WTO are also the types of services provision you have in the TPP. So my own sense is, is that the, the standards that uh, countries are looking at in the TPP now may be a bit of a reach for China at this point, but one wants to try to keep the process moving forward. And that takes really to your related question about the nature of the reforms. I think uh, on the one hand, after 30 years of 10% a year growth, it was, it's very impressive that the Chinese leadership recognized they have to change the structure mm -hmm. of growth. It was based on exports, it was based heavily on investment, it, it was, uh, uh, and a high savings rate. And uh, I can think of many economies in the world that if you were doing that well, would not easily start to realize you had to change. When I was at the World Bank, some Chinese officials suggested to me that I suggest to their superiors the idea of a report, which became the China 2030 yeah. report, that was looking at these structural changes. And if you, if you go back and you look at that report, which we did with the Chinese, with the Development Research Council, this think tank under the State Council, you'll see that it's the raw material for a lot of what came out of the third uh, party plenum. The challenge now is the sequencing and pursuing those reforms. And here, at least from the discussions I have with Chinese reformers, I think they feel the country's at a different stage. And, in a way, I, I think Xi Jinping's historical goal is to have an accomplishment for China like Mao did in setting up the republic and Deng Xiaoping did in opening up the economy and he's trying to move to the next stage. What, what some have said is that in the past, China could break the old system and then start again. And what you hear now is it's too complicated. You mm -hmm. can't do it that way. So a lot of the reforms I think we'll start out taking the form of uh, 
changes in governance, modernization, structure. For example, the issue of the revenue and expenditures between the provinces and the center. This was something that the, in the 90s, Beijing had to get a hold of, but because the revenues for the provincial and local governments are now all directed from the center, when the local governments need more money, they take land. Yeah. And that's obviously a socially destabilizing issue. So you have that sort of issue. You have the future of the hoku system and, and what will be the rights of people in China. Um, uh, you have critical issues of environment, which are a key question now of, of really political legitimacy for the regime. So uh, Wang Yang, for example, mentioned to me, the vice premier, that he said, we, we look upon those 60 points as creating a framework to be filled in over the next seven to 10 years. The challenge will be, I think, uh, in the past 30 years, leaders at any level had a very clear objective, growth, mm -hmm. growth uber alles in German mm -hmm. sense. And now they're having to deal with multiple objectives. And right. that's much more complicated, whether it be environmental, social stability, sort of other aspects. I think, and I think this is probably one of the most important developments over the past year, this is why Xi Jinping has consolidated power much more quickly than most Sinologists expected. So with the seven-person standing committee, where he's clearly the dominant person, uh, moving to the chair of the Central Military Commission quicker than President Hu did, new National Security uh, Council, and the use of party high-level leading groups to drive the reform process. I think what this, and it's, this is combined with what you read in the paper about the anti-corruption campaign and even uh, the self-criticism, which is really goes back to a Maoist technique of kind of destabilizing potential uh, enemies. All this, I think, suggests that Xi will try to use this to push the reforms, but it's no easy task. And yeah. one should not underestimate uh, the challenge of this. And I think that, you know, Looking at it as a whole, uh, you know, where the leaders are, are wise is recognizing from past economic reforms how you have to make changes like eventually open the capital account, how you have to move to market pricing. But their challenge will be they've built special interest over 30 years and those will not easily uh, relent. Mm -hmm. So whether it's Singapore, whether it's ASEAN, you know, whether it's Europe or the United States, there's a lot dependent on, frankly, this moving in an in a yeah. effective direction. When I was reading that article in the Financial Times, it struck me that you didn't talk at all about any political reform. You expected it to be very quiet on that side? And in fact, quite to the contrary. I think you know, one point that I emphasized in that piece was that when I talk about China in the US or Europe, there's a lot of focus on the near-term market issues bad debts, uh, you know, question of overbuilding in second and third tier cities, shadow banking. And the key point that I wanted to give to people is when you're in Beijing, the number one priority isn't adjusting to that part of the cycle. It's the preservation of the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a very strong historical sense about how long the Communist Party lasted in the Soviet Union. I pointed out that the cadres have all been instructed to watch a documentary about the fall of the Soviet Union, and Gorbachev is not a starring hero in that documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and so my own belief is that the boldness of economic reform will actually be combined with real political cautiousness, 
because they don't want to risk upheaval. Now, having said that, you know, the party has continued to experiment with polling and local elections and other aspects. So one should be alert to the fact that, you know, this is still a very changing society. But sometimes people believe that economic reform will uh, be inextricably connected with the political reform. I believe over time that's the case, uh, but I wouldn't suggest we're going to see them fit together now. Yeah. The other big country here in this part of the world is of course Japan um, and uh, we see, I mean actually we saw what is it, the third pillar uh, recently, uh, Abenomics, uh, we see also the political tensions that exist between Japan and Korea and China. Uh, what's your view on what's going on in Japan? Well, again, you believe that Abenomics will work? Well, it depends on what you refer to the third arrow ultimately. Yeah. Um, the, uh, But to put this in context, there's actually an analogy to what I described with China, where the prime purpose is the preservation of the party. For Prime Minister Abe, he doesn't approach this as a uh, Friedmanite economic reformer. He approaches this with the goal of restoring Japan's influence, mm -hmm. or in his terms, making Japan a normal country in the region. So he also has a historical sense. Now, the reason why that's important is that I don't think he's focused solely on microeconomic reforms for the sense of efficiency. If you want to make Japan a more influential country, you're going to have to deal with issues such as demographics. Japan shrinks about 250,000 people a year. Yeah. Now, will the country be open to more immigrants? Well, there's some slight moves, but historically and culturally, I wouldn't bank on that. What it, what it does mean, and you see this in Abe's statements and some of his policies, is the role of women in the Japanese mm -hmm. economy. Uh, Anders Borg, the Swedish finance minister, did a rough analysis of women's participation in Japan and in Europe. So not just Scandinavia, but Europe. And he analyzed that if uh, the participation rates in Japan were similar to Europe, you'd increase the GDP by about 8%. So there's no small amount uh, yeah. in Japan. And so you can see that from a perspective of Japan's influence, Abe is actually moving against what some people might have thought as a conservative tendency by trying to figure out how can they expand the role of women in the workforce. Similarly, you see his moves on corporate governance. Right. These are partly efforts to internationalize and, and open Japanese competition, as well as most market people will believe it would lead to more of an equity culture and things. Um, and so, as you look at the changes in Japan, it's important to understand what is the underlying driver. Now, this too has a historical basis. If you look at um, what has moved J Japanese society over the course of 200 years, you had what were called the black ships, the U.S. Commodore Perry coming in mm -hmm. the 1850s, which was the shock to the shogun system and uh, the, uh, the establishment of a new modern Japan. You had World War II. In the 1970s, you had the oil shock, which led to a great change in Japanese energy efficiency. In effect, what Prime Minister Abe is trying to do is he's trying to take the rise of China and some of the potential dangers for Japan and congeal it into another force to change the mm -hmm. Japanese system. Um, the, on the monetary policy side, obviously, they've taken extremely bold moves. 
we'll have to see whether the increase in the value-added taxes uh, slows down some of the um, demand. I believe, I'm hopeful, they can make through that. But the key question goes back to these structural changes. And here, you know, for I'm sure many people in this audience has also visited Japan, one of the challenges they face is it's a comfortable society. You go visit Japan and people say, why should we change? It's lurking pretty well. So that, is, that, that goes back to this point about how the prime minister is trying to use the external environment to shape the overall reforms. And I guess my concluding thought would be the types of structural reforms that, that are on the agenda and that are necessary are not going to be made like that or overnight. So one needs to see an ongoing progression here. And from my experience of working with the Japanese on these issues over 25 years, I must say I start a little skeptical, but I'm hopeful because it's quite important for Japan to, to make these changes. So I will encourage them to keep the process moving. Staying with the U.S. for a second, um, or for a few minutes, uh, one of the things that is clearly hap happening is that the, I mean, that the economy is recovering and the, the speed with which the economy is actually renovate, uh, renewing itself, not renovating, but renewing itself, the new, the new businesses that are created, etc. The private sector seems to be uh, doing quite well. Uh, and maybe you want to make a comment on that too, that is the private sector is doing well, uh, why is it that the government doesn't do that well either uh, in the United States? But uh, coming with that or with that, that new or that invigorated economy, we also see that um, the, quantitative, the quantitative easing is sort of still lingering, but maybe be reviewed at whatever. What do you see uh, as the impact of uh, uh, the perhaps continued quantitative easing uh, tapering on, uh, on the Asia here, on, on what's going on here? Okay. Let me connect these two strands because in a way, when we talked about China, we talked about Japan, whether you talk about India, others, uh, or you- I haven't United talked about India yet, but I'm sure there will okay. be questions from the room about that. But, but the, what it's interesting is, um, we were discuss or trade, we were discussing the structural reforms in the microeconomic. Yeah. I think, and when you're talking about the quantitative easing, you're obviously talking about the macroeconomic. I think one um, aspect of the current world economy that leads to uncertainty is we really have two trends going on here that are slightly different and how they interact is important. So on the one hand, as we move into the sixth year, you know, beyond the sort of the Great Recession, we're at a phase where you're seeing the question of the exit <clears throat> of extraordinary fiscal and then monetary policies. And an exit means eventually you have to hand off to the private sector. Mm -hmm. And so you're at a management university. I'm sure you have many people here that watch financial markets. <coughs> you know, one of the questions are, what are those valuations based on? Are they based on flows of funds? Or are they based on underlying real economies? Or another way to say this is, if you're looking at, say, the U.S. equity market, ultimately earnings have to have the last word. It's not just a question of financial flows. So on the one hand, with quantitative easing or related policies, in Japan, when we talked about, you know, the third arrow is the handoff, I think it's useful to think about how we move beyond this great era of experimentation with macro policies to hand off to the real economy. But then, in a way, where we started the conversation is what's often overlooked, which is, in my view, that means the second 
sort of phase is the structural reforms. Mm -hmm. How do you create the underlying basis for productivity and growth? So let me just say a word about that in the U.S. Yep. and a world developing. In the U.S., as you pointed out, one of the strengths of the system is for an economy that's at the technological frontier, it continues to have the ability to innovate, as we saw in the energy sector, you see in robotics. It's not just software, it's how software is transforming industries, the use of big data. And let me give people a practical example. Last year I was asked to visit the senior management of John Deere, big agricultural equipment, very sophisticated equipment. But you could see that the challenge for them, as in many enterprises, was how do they avoid having a commoditized price? Right. So what they're looking at is how they combine their equipment with the service. And what they showed me was with big data now, you could actually have the information to download to a tractor to adjust the fertilizer, moisture, seed, others, row by row to increase productivity 10 to 15%. Mm -hmm. But, and so John Deere wants to be connected with the big data platform. But interestingly enough, Monsanto, the seed producer, actually bought a big data company because it doesn't want to be commoditized as the seed producer. It wants the package. And Syngenta, the fertilizer right. company, doesn't want to be commoditized. It wants the package. And so I mention this because what I found interesting working with CEOs around the world is that there's an, an interest about how they combine this innovation of big data to offer service packages to price differently um, and to avoid being commoditized. <laughs> Think how much of that gets driven out of the U.S. I mean, th this whole development has emerged from there. So the good news is, or I, I spent some time up at Harvard where I'm a senior fellow, you go up to Harvard Square, there's a whole bioengineering industry, and I will yet to see exactly how it comes to market and others. That's the good side of the U.S. The bad side is what you also referred to, which is that at the governmental level, the structural reforms, whether it be in tax reform, whether it be in our slowing down the growth of entitlement spending, whether it be immigration, whether it be trade, that is stuck. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in the U.S. society, that's where the tension sort of rests in the system. <clears throat> having said that, and I'm, I, I'm drawing attention this year because having worked with Asia over 25, 30 years, people tend to focus most on this, even if they have private market background, they focus on the government and the state. To be honest, if I had a choice between a dynamic private sector and a dynamic government, I think I'd pick the dynamic private sector. I'd like both, okay? Yeah. But I don't want to kill the private sector's yeah. dynamism, okay? Now, let's bring that to the emerging markets. And here's a way that I'll give you a reference. When we did this work with China mm -hmm. on their structural reforms, we went back at the World Bank and looked at the 101 economies that we had classified as middle income in 1960. And so this was 2008, almost 50 years later. Of those 101 economies classified as middle income, by 2008, only 13 had made it to high income, and one was Greece, so you figure out whether it's 12 or 13. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, Singapore was one of the economies, uh, as was Taiwan and Korea. Uh, but this is a very instructive experience for the Chinas, the Indias, the Brazils, and others. Because the lesson here is, some economists refer to this as the middle income trap. 
Other economists say no, it applies at any mm -hmm. level of development. But what I think has driven the Chinese leaders to reform is how do you maintain these productivity growths? If you go back and you look at the early Robert Samuelson texts mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s, they project that the Soviet Union, a country which no longer exists, will be larger than the United States by 1980 or 90, because that was what the growth rates are. Okay? But one of the lessons we've learned is be careful of straight line projections. Okay. So coming, That's what we teach our students, by the way. <laughs> good, good lesson. Yeah. So, so coming back to, 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 to weld this together, I think what you're going to see in emerging markets is a further differentiation based on the structural reforms. Mm -hmm. So if, and again, if, if you give a little perspective, over the past decade, you had about a trillion dollars a year going to emerging markets, roughly, over the past 10 years. And on top of that, you had a commodity boom, you had China's growth, and you had inevitably what you see with some government officials, which is they started to believe their own press releases. And that created a vulnerability. And what we now have seen, reference to the fragile five, those that had larger current account deficits were more vulnerable. So coming back to your question about tapering, I think the tapering has been done gradually, but what is a signal is that you know, countries that at one point in a cycle were relying on capital flows coming in and out have to do the hard homework. Right. And it's a nice story here in Singapore because I think one of the things that has distinguished Singapore is it's a country that has obviously been successful, but it has a slight paranoid streak. And so it's always saying, what else do we have to do? And, and to be honest, I think that's probably a healthy tendency. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And I'm sure that the room will join me in giving you a very warm thank you.